This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. First of all, it's a great pleasure to be invited. I wish I was there in person, but this is second best to do it virtually. And you can see my title, Autism Research and Neurodiversity, The Changing Culture. But I'm going to start with what you all know, just what do we mean by autism? Uh, you know that the diagnosis is made on the basis of social and communication difficulties um, and also difficulties adjusting to change. Um, and this particular characteristic of unusual narrow interests, sometimes called obsessions, and unusually repetitive behavior. And in 2013, the American Psychiatric Association added a fourth characteristic, which is sensory hypersensitivity. Um, you can see that in the photo in this slide that we have an image of a boy with autism. Uh, and I'll go on to explain that autism is diagnosed more, more often in boys. And he's playing alone. So that kind of hints at the social difficulties. But you can also see that he's engaged in intelligent behavior, lining up his toys to make interesting patterns. That is the topic of my recent book, The Pattern Seekers. So here's the evidence that autism is um, more common in boys. You can see that this data uh, from the Center for Disease Control in the US uh, 2014 showed that one in 68 kids have a diagnosis of autism, and the sex ratio was four males to every one female. We think that since then, um, autism in females has, has been better recognized. And this has been a gradual process during this century. So it's probably closer now to three males to every one female, or maybe even two to one. So there's still a bias towards males but maybe not as pronounced as it used to be, uh, probably because of under-recognition and misdiagnosis in females. And you can see here that this data from 2019 shows that females get their diagnosis on average later than males. Uh, and one suggestion is that maybe there's greater social pressure on girls to be sociable, to be communicative, and that they're doing what's called camouflaging or hiding their autism uh, until such a point where, it be, where the anxiety in pretending to be the same as everyone else becomes too great and they seek a diagnosis or their parents do. So I want to talk about this concept of neurodiversity. Most of you will be familiar with it. Uh, and I think it's summed up very nicely by this quote from the autistic professor Temple Grandin in the US, who says, I'm different, not less. The concept of neurodiversity is that brains come in many different types. Um, there are hundreds of ways for the brain to be wired up and to develop. So we can no longer talk about a normal brain, um, just differences. And that when we find differences in the population, it doesn't mean that one is better or worse than another. They're just different, not less. 
But interestingly, this concept of neurodiversity is dividing the autism community. This is a piece that I wrote in Scientific American uh, in 2019. And the division in the autism community really um, is split along those who think that autism is a disease or a disorder versus those who think it is simply a difference. And what I did in that article in Scientific American was to argue actually all four Ds apply to autism. It is a difference, and I'm going to show you some evidence for how the mind and the brain in autism is different. It's also a disability, so that's the second D. So the reason you get your diagnosis is because you're struggling, either with social communication or with adjusting to unexpected change. I think you can also argue that it's a disorder in that some of the symptoms cause distress. And you can even argue that some of the signs or symptoms are evidence of disease. And the distinction there between disorder and disease is that you, you use the term disease in medicine where the mechanism, the causal mechanism is known and where it's unknown, you call it a disorder, but where both are causing uh, distress. And I think as we go through the characteristics of autism, we'll see evidence that different aspects of autism uh, could be described with each of these four Ds. So let's just remind ourselves that beyond the diagnosis of autism, many autistic people have co-occurring conditions. And this review uh, from The Lancet that we wrote covers some of the rates of co-occurring conditions from epilepsy to learning difficulties, to being minimally verbal, to some medical conditions like gastrointestinal pain or language delay, and of course, high rates of poor mental health. Many, indeed, most autistic people have some or multiple co-occurring conditions. And that may be why there is a division between the concept of those who believe in neurodiversity, just recognizing difference, and those who want to acknowledge and underline the importance of the concept of disorder or disease. And that led me to write a second piece, also in Scientific American, with this title, Is it time to give up on a single diagnostic label for autism? At the moment, the American Psychiatric uh, Association simply offers this concept, this label of autism spectrum disorder, or just autism for short. But maybe, as I argued in this piece, we need, we need to identify subgroups because of the huge heterogeneity or variation on the autism spectrum. But let's now zoom in on this concept of neurodiversity and ask how can we um, find evidence for neurodiversity, both within the autism spectrum and, and indeed in the general population? Well, here's one example, which comes from Karen Pierce's lab um, in San Diego, published in 2010, where she presented two types of stimuli to toddlers coming to the clinic, either a social stimulus like a human face or a non-social stimulus like this geometric design. 
And what she found was that if a child looked for more than 70% of the time at the non-social stimulus, the probability that they would go on to receive an autism diagnosis was 100%. So this was a behavioral test, simply showing that kids come in different varieties. Some kids are more interested in the social world, looking at faces, and other kids are more interested in the non-social world, the world of patterns, and that one isn't better or worse, and that autism seems to be an extreme of the type of brain that has a preference for looking at the non-social world, the world of systems or patterns. A second way that we can measure neurodiversity is to use questionnaires. And I'm gonna describe a very big online study which used two questionnaires, the empathy quotient, which asks you how, how good you are at picking up on other people's thoughts and feelings, including theory of mind, putting yourself into someone else's shoes to imagine what they might, they might think or feel. But we also gave them a second questionnaire called the systemizing quotient, which asks you how interested you are in a range of different systems, whether they're natural systems like rivers, mechanical systems like railways, um, or collecting things. And what you can see, first of all, on the empathy quotient, is there's huge variability in the population. So this was a big study, 600,000 typical people took part, and 36,000 autistic people. It was published in 2018 in the journal PNAS. What we found was a sex difference in the general population with women on average scoring higher than men. But we also found that autistic people, both males and females, scored lower than those without autism. So this is showing, this is one way to, to visually image neurodiversity. And on that second questionnaire, the systemizing quotient, again, we found a sex difference. This time on average, males scored higher than females, reporting stronger interest in how systems work, how things work. But autistic people scored even higher than non-autistic people. So again, we're seeing variation in the population. And if you want to see a scatter plot, to me, this really sums up what we mean by neurodiversity, that brains could be divided into at least five different types. You can see them here. And in yellow are, are women in the population, in green are men in the population, both without autism, and in red and purple are people with an autism diagnosis. But again, we're seeing differences in their cognitive profile. So this helps explain autistic individuals like this man, Derek Paravicini, who is a musician, he can play any jazz song after hearing it just once. And if you ask him to transcribe it into a new key, he can do that instantly. But he has a mental age of a three-year-old and he's also congenitally blind. What he's doing is using his excellent systemizing, his fascination with patterns, in this case, auditory patterns, um, to excel in his love of music. And this is... Max Park, who is autistic, lives in California, and uh, is ranked as the number one champion in the Rubik's Cube. 
despite being autistic. So although he struggles with his social skills and communication, um, a reflection of the difficulties, I think, in understanding other people's thoughts and feelings, that cognitive empathy. Nevertheless, he's got strengths in pattern recognition, in this case, visual patterns, which he can use to his advantage in a game like the Rubik's Cube. In that big study, we also asked people to complete the autism spectrum quotient, which is a measure of how many autistic traits you have. Again, amongst the 600,000 people, you can see diversity, that males on average have slightly more autistic traits than females in the population, and that autistic people of both genders maybe unsurprisingly, have even more autistic traits. We then divided that large population into those who work in STEM, science, technology, engineering, or mathematics, or not working in STEM. And you can see that even in the general population, if you work in STEM, on average, you have more autistic traits than people who don't work in STEM. And this shows, again, a link between autistic traits and an aptitude in understanding systems or patterns, which is of course what's needed to work in STEM. So then we asked um, people who'd taken the questionnaires to give us a saliva sample. And we did this by working with the company 23andMe, the personal genomics company, because that allowed us to look for genome-wide association study so what are the common genetic variants associated with performance on the systemizing quotient or pattern recognition? And then compare that to the common genetic variants associated with autism. And what you can see is that there was a significant correlation or overlap between the genes associated with performance on systemizing and the genes associated with autism. So this is changing the way we think about autism, that rather than thinking of autism purely as a disease or at the genetic level as involving diseased genes, actually what we're seeing is that some of the genetics of autism involve genes that predispose to an aptitude in excellent pattern recognition. So that's the thesis of my recent book, The Pattern Seekers. And you can see the subtitle, How Autism Drives Human Invention. And in the book, I take a long view um, back to the origins of invention. And I'm just going to give you one example here of the, the earliest musical instrument that's been found from 40,000 years ago. It's made from a hollow bone of a bird. And I think it involves what I call the systemizing mechanism, this uniquely human ability to use a certain logic, which is called if-and-then logic. If I blow down this hollow bone and I cover one hole, then I make a sound. But if I blow down the hollow bone and cover two holes, then I make a different sound. And it's this kind of experimenting or playing with patterns that I think is the basis for human invention, why Homo sapiens alone is 
capable of what I call generative invention. We've been, we've been inventing for the last 100,000 years unstoppably. A final example of neurodiversity at the behavioral level or the psychological level can be seen in language development, because this shows you that actually, when you measure children's language development, they fall into at least five different types or trajectories, developmental trajectories, with some kids talking early, that's the top curve, some kids being very slow to talk, that's the lowest curve, and other kids somewhere in between, such that you can end up with outliers, like these three kids here, who even by two years old are not talking, but it's all part of neurodiversity in the population. We can also see this neurodiversity at the neurological level. And this was a study by Eric Corchain, also in San Diego, who looked at post-mortem brain tissue from autistic people and a control group and found that the autistic brain has 65% more neurons in the frontal lobe, shown here in green. So we're seeing differences between those with a diagnosis and those without in terms of the number of nerve cells, the number of neurons. But of course, even that is an example of diversity. I'm just gonna show you a study from 2014 where they were able to image individual nerve cells on the right from an autistic brain, on the left from a typical or non-autistic brain. And even with the naked eye, you can see that the autistic neuron or nerve cell has many more white dots along the length of it. Each of those dots is the location of a dendritic spine where the neuron forms a connection with its neighbors. So what this is telling us is that the autistic brain may not only have more nerve cells, possibly picking up more information in the world, but also more connections between nerve cells, able to uh, make connections perhaps much more rapidly than a typical person. And in the center of this slide, you can see that they were able to, to divide the brain post-mortem tissue into two groups, those who are younger and those who are older, and look at the number of those spines as a function of change with age. And what you can see is that the autistic group, the dotted line, have a less steep decline meaning that the process of what's called apoptosis or selective neuronal uh, death or pruning is slower in autism, maybe explaining why by teens or adulthood, uh, they still retain more connections than the typical brain. And of course, this relates back to sex differences because a very old study back from 1997 showed that there are sex differences in the number of neurons that on average we see in the female brain and the male brain, that males have more neurons than um, females do on average, males with an average of 22 billion and females with uh, 19 uh, billion. Uh, and of course, what we saw in that earlier study from Eric Corchen's lab is that autistic people have even more. So at the neurological level, we see neurodiversity. So what is causing autism? Well, in my sort of simple way of characterizing it, 
I see two important prenatal factors, genetics and prenatal sex hormones. And both of these prenatal factors, so the causes are starting before birth, affect males and females differently to affect brain development. We know that genetics is at play because autism runs in families, that where you have one child with autism in the family, the likelihood of the next child also being autistic is about one in three compared to the general population prevalence of autism of about 1%. But we know that autism isn't just genetic because you can have identical twins, like these two sisters, where one is autistic and one isn't, even though they're identical genetically, which must mean there are some non-genetic or environmental factors also at play. In terms of the genetics, progress has been remarkable in identifying rare genetic variants. Uh, over 100 of these have been identified. So they're rare in the sense that they only occur in the general population in about one in a thousand individuals, but they're more common in those with an autism diagnosis. And all of these genes uh, are found in the brain. But we also know that autism involves common genetic variants. That's to say genes that we all carry, but in different combinations and different forms, so-called polymorphisms. And this study from 2018 shows that about five of these common genetic variants have been found so far, because you can see them above the red line. They've crossed the threshold of probability or significance being associated with autism. We study autism genetics in our lab, and we've recently launched a study called Spectrum 10K, which was designed to collect saliva samples from 10,000 autistic people. When we launched it, there was um, uh, concerns raised by a section of the autism community who worried that autism genetics might be intended for a eugenics agenda, that's to say, to screen autistic people prenatally so that uh, the fetus might, might uh, be terminated during pregnancy. I actually wrote an article in New Scientist back in 2018 saying that we need to do genetics to understand the causes of autism and to understand the links between autism and co-occurring health conditions like epilepsy and like gastrointestinal pain. But genetics isn't intended for eugenics or eradication or prevention of autism. But this is a live bioethical debate with the autism community. And we've decided to pause the study to have a co-designed consultation with the autism community to reassure them, but also internationally to see how we can safeguard autism genetic studies to make sure that the results are never used towards eugenics. Just in closing, I want to mention that many autistic people have poor mental health. We conducted this study in 2014, which showed that two thirds of autistic adults have felt suicidal and one third of autistic adults have made plans to take their lives or have actually attempted suicide. And this is a shocking wake-up call that we need much better support for autistic people because depression, 
which always goes hand in hand with suicidal feelings and behavior, is not a part of autism. Autistic people are not born with depression. It's more likely to be secondary to a lack of support. So I want to finish with some conclusions that we are now doing research and looking at autism in a different way it, with, if you like, a new culture. First of all, that researchers must engage in what's called participatory research, talking to the autism community, both autistic adults and families and parents, and engage in what's called co-design to make sure that research is relevant to autistic people's lives. And many of you will have heard of the slogan, nothing about us without us, please talk to us. Secondly, we've seen a real shift since the time when I met you, Roger, all those years ago in the 90s, when autism was considered quite rare, about one in a thousand, to today where autism is considered common, about one in a hundred. And one big change is that the majority of autistic people now do not have an intellectual disability, whereas back then, the majority of autistic people did have a co-occurring learning difficulty or intellectual disability. And then finally, both autism research and our society must address neurodiversity and disability. We can't afford to neglect one in favor of the other and to recognize that autistic people's human rights, their right to employment, their right to education, their right to leisure and support are being violated and we need to move forward to, to make sure that autistic people enjoy full human rights. Thank you. Um, thank you. Thank you, Simon. I mean, there's just a huge amount of things to talk about there, which, um, which I hope we will get to. Um, uh, there's, as I said before, every time you write a book, it's controversial. <laughs> and there's some very interesting points. Um, you, you actually did, uh, obviously, I, I know that you treat these as opportunities to explore these challenges that come to you. Um, certainly the piece that was in Nature, uh, 7 October 2021, High Profile Autism Genetics Project Paused Amid Backlash, you just mentioned this. Um, you specifically said here that the Spectrum 10K website, which is your project states that it does not aim to eradicate autism. His team is, ve ve Baron, Baron Cohen says his team is vehemently against eugenics and that prenatal screening is out of the question. Genetics of autism is complex. We may be talking about hundreds or thousands of genes. He said you could never diagnose autism prenatally and that's because even if we knew the biology, Diagnosis rests on behavior. That's only possible to observe postnatally. I think part of the issue here, though, is that this has also come at a time of great turmoil in, in viewing uh, some of these issues, not only the Me Too movement, the Black Lives Matter, so on, the autistic community, the spectrum there, and so on. There's a, there's a turbulence which somehow needs to be resolved. And at the same time, uh, as you're dealing with this, Catherine Page Harden has come out with her book, The Genetic Lottery, which is a very, uh, as far as I can see, a very um, um, detailed and thoughtful treatment of um, genetics 
but has obviously raised yet again the issue of eugenics and, and, and the, 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 the drama of all of that. A couple of thoughts there, if you want to respond, and then we'll go, go to a couple of, uh, couple of people yeah. we'll have a conversation with. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, we are living in a, a new age. Um, you know, one, one of the things that the pandemic has done is it's introduced a lot of, of government surveillance. You know, in the UK, we have a system called test and trace. You know, um, uh, people are being monitored a lot for whether they're infected, for example, with COVID. So there's a lot of kind of sense that the state is suddenly collecting samples from us, bio samples. And I think that, you know, genetic autism researchers looking at genetics may be experiencing some of that um, slight discomfort. You know, what's happening with our, our DNA? What's happening with all of our data? Where's it going to end up and how will it be used? A second point is that we know that from the 1980s, Down syndrome has been tested in my country, in the National Health Service, the NHS, but worldwide using a procedure called amniocentesis. And there are now new methods. I think some autistic people are very worried that once we have a lot of biomarkers for autism, that they will be next. That we know that the majority of, of, of people with Down syndrome who would have lived were prevented from living because of national screening for Down syndrome. Of course, it's optional. Women opt to have one of these screening tests, but many women may feel a pressure to terminate their pregnancy once they test positive, as it were. So understandably, many autistic people might be wondering, are we next? Will we, will we be prevented or eradicated in the way that many people with Down syndrome have been? And these, these issues need to be debated because they're big ethical issues for society. Yeah. So I've got some more questions. There's a couple of Q&As come up, but I think what we should do is to enrich the conversation at this point by uh, hearing from Michelle McGowan and Becca Laurie Hector um, about their, their, their perspective, any questions that they have with you. Are they, are they there? So <clears throat> ladies, um, I, who wants to start? Becca? Sure. Uh, I am Becca Laurie Hector. I am an autistic adult as well as an advocate, uh, as well as um, a beginning researcher, author, speaker, um, and consultant on autism, neurodiversity, and inclusion. And uh, Michelle, are you around there? Where is Michelle? My name is Michelle McGowan, and I am a mom of three sons, two um, that are on the autism spectrum, and I am a special education advocate. All right. Um, what's your response to what Simon has been saying, basically? Do you want Becca, to go do you want to go first? Uh, it's up to you. I, I will um, begin if you want. I have notes. <laughs> I have a lot of notes. I feel like uh, Simon and I could have a whole dinner's worth of conversation about what he talked about in 30 minutes. Um, <clears throat> so I do have a lot of questions and I do want to kind of 
I don't know, I don't want to play truly devil's advocate, but I do want to bring up some of the sides that we didn't get to hear from your presentation um, about those topics. So um, I think I love that you talked about the new culture of nothing about us without us. Um, and that, you know, we've, we're learning that ID is not necessarily the majority of us on the spectrum um, and all of those things and, and stuff. And, and um, because of that, I want to just take a moment to explain what that means for autistics. Right. Um, so for a very long time, we've been excluded from our research about us, um, whether we were interested in the topics being researched, whether they impacted our lives, whether they made any difference to us at all uh, mattered not. Um, the money was being funded and going all to research that was by academics and what academics thought was important to look at in autism, right? So for a really long time, we've been doing the kind of research that Simon has talked about, which is all of this very um, intricate and very tiny research into these little, these systems of our bodies. But what we haven't seen is a whole chunk of research on like social, social research and the social implications of stuff. For a lot of us on the spectrum, we could take the causes of autism, box them up, put them in a closet somewhere and never look at them again. We don't care why it exists. We just know that it exists. And our reality is that I exist as a human right now. Why I came to be this way, right, is, is not an issue. My issue is I'm alive right now and I'm struggling in the world and I need some help, right? And so whether or not it's because of my X chromosome does not matter to me. Right. Um, whether or not I have a male or female brain doesn't matter to me. No offense. Right. What matters to me is that on a daily basis, I have to wake up and take care of myself and be an interdependent functional adult out in the world and take care of myself. And the fact is that research has not up till really very recently looked at any of that stuff for us. Um, and so I think a lot of the pushback that we're seeing and the, the desire to throw eugenics into the conversation comes from, hey, you've taken advantage of us for a really long time. Now you want stuff from us that only we can give you. Why should we give it to you? Right? Why should I make it easy for you when you haven't worked to make it easy for me? Right. And that's where I think a lot of that pushback comes from. So I just sort of wanted to present that side of that new culture piece. Um, it's really apparent in, in like our global existence. Right. Because when even when you go on LinkedIn and you look at stuff about human resources and they're talking about DNI, you know, diversity and inclusion, we never talk in under those letters about disability. Right. And we are not included. Disabled folk who are a huge part of the conversation, huge part of our population aren't included in that conversation about being included. And it's like this. That is basically like a summation of what happens to folks when you become a you become a, a like a monetary asset, really. Right. Folks want their research to happen and get funded. And so they need us for that. Right. But but we don't really matter in terms of the impact of the research being done. Um, and so I think that's where a lot of the pushback, our, the autistic voice has gotten bigger and stronger over the last few years. Um, our community is moving very much towards a cultural direction rather than just being a diagnosis. Um, and we're very much following in the footsteps of the LGBTQ community, in fact, right? Historically, it looks identical. Um, so we sort of can even predict what the next steps are gonna be for the autistic community by looking at that. Um, and all of it is heading in this direction of human rights, right? And social research. And so um, I just wanna make sure that we sort of look at it that way and see the other side. 
Um, that's a really confidence. Um, so let, let me just add one little thing here. I mean, we'll get into this a little bit later on with uh, with 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 Liz Torres as well. But I did notice on LinkedIn the other day, just to round out what Becca's been saying, um, there was a comment by somebody who's um, senior manager DEI and ambassador for international neurodiversity and inclusion. Um, something that Jeff Snyder, who's probably watching this, um, mm, I know Jeff. Yes, also saw you. So, and she said, "It's so very hard to listen to a panel of professionals who have good intentions and are very knowledgeable speaking about autistics and commodifying and using autistics as tokens when there is little to no autistic representation." Another perfect example of something about us without us, not nothing about us without us. Uh, it's not about making a business case for neurodiversity. Neurotypical should not be leading the conversation and so on. This is essentially what you were saying. Mm -hmm. right? And Simon, That's you good. must be hearing this all the time. Yeah, I want to first of all say thank you, Becca. For, that was a very, a very eloquent and, yes. and passionate um, sort of plea for inclusion. And of course, inclusion should be the starting point. And you're absolutely right that historically, Autistic people were not part of the conversation in terms of determining priorities for research. I think part of that, this isn't meant to be defensive, but part of that, part of that is that the spectrum itself has changed over the decades. So I, so I came into autism research in the mid 80s, you know, and um, it wasn't really until the mid 90s that we had the, the diagnosis of Asperger syndrome, 1994, uh, introduced in, in, in DSM-4. You, you remember this history. And that kind of opened up the spectrum. It opened up diagnosis for a lot of people who have good intelligence, good language, but who still struggle yeah. with, uh, you know, with autism. And so I think the spectrum itself has broadened and that's, and that's meant new people have come forward and are quite rightly saying, why aren't you talking to us? You know, why, why are researchers setting the agenda? I just want to mention a couple of other things. The first is that uh, when I mentioned about suicidality and lack of support for autistic people, um, in the UK, the evidence suggests that 85% of autistic adults are unemployed. Yeah. And we know that unemployment is bad for your mental health, whether you're autistic or not. You feel excluded, you feel un unvalued, um, you don't have autonomy because you don't have a wage. So, you know, there are these, these are really important examples of the violation of human rights, the right to work, for example. Um, we published a paper in 2018. The first author, author is Griffiths, um, looking at areas of vulnerability. And again, I think this is the kind of social research that I think right. the autism community is asking for. We looked at rates of homelessness, rates of um, bullying, rates of physical abuse, sexual abuse, domestic violence, poverty, all the indicators of vulnerability, um, and found all of these were higher in autistic people. So you're absolutely right. We need research that's relevant to people's lives. It needs to be co-designed. This is a new way of doing research. And this is why the title of this talk was about the changing culture mm -hmm. for autism research. Um, I, yeah, I want to make sure everyone gets a chance to talk, so I'll just stop there. But thank you for that contribution.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, let me let me just um, before transitioning to Michelle, since this is on point, and Jonathan Sabat just wrote a question, a, a, a comment in, which I think follows what you were saying, Simon and Becca. Let me just read that to you, and then we'll we'll have dealt with it. Saying this raises the question: Is there a fundamental difference between how research subjects are treated in ASD studies? and how research subjects are treated in studies of diabetes. Are they really? The main difference is that the average age of a subject in our study, he's talking about his own work, is eight. Inclusion is so important, but how the inclusion is handled depends on the age of the subject. Do you want to speak to that? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I mean, I think that, you know, what autistic people are asking for is probably, it probably applies to any group who are the... Um, you know, who are, who are the, the subject of research. Uh, if we're talking about kids, it may be that you need to talk to them through their parents. Um, if we're talking about medical conditions like diabetes, you know, the patient should still have a voice. You know, Becca made the analogy with the LGBTQ community, but we know that for many years, back in the 60s and 70s, the gay population was being studied but not consulted. You know, and that whole revolution of moving the research agenda into the hands of people who, who, who have lived experience was really important and resulted in fantastic breakthroughs. So um, what's happening in autism research is really just mirrored in many different areas of research. And it's the new way of doing things. It's, it's about co-design. It's about participatory research. Yeah. So all of these groups are really just working towards making the research better. It's like we know we can't get our supports unless you guys do your research. Right. Like I can't get supports funded if there's no research backing up saying that we need these things. Right. So, you know, it's we need to work as a team in order to facilitate the growth of the community, period. Right. And to make sure that funding is dispersed more equally and all of those things. And those of us that have a voice or are in positions of privilege and power need to be using their voices to make that shift kind of occur because no one's looking to shut down the research everyone's just saying can we just move it around a bit right there's stuff that we need right you look at our suicide rate you look at our unemployment rate and i can tell you i'd be dead right now if i hadn't gotten my autism diagnosis i had plans i was three years suicidal and bed bound i should be dead i am on borrowed time right now But the truth of the matter is I got my diagnosis and if I didn't choose to work my diagnosis, I'd be dead now too, because there's still no supports for adults. So the diagnosis does doohickey for you right now. And and so that's a big problem. You know, we have a huge number of kids. They will be adults one day. What are we doing? Right. We're not thinking ahead anymore. Yeah. Michelle, do you you wish to come in at this point? Yes, this is a great point because uh, thank you, Becca, for sharing. It is very enlightening to me as a mother. And and, um, I adopted my three sons. um, And so I was not familiar because it was not um, a... uh, a trait within my family of autism. So um, my two youngest are biological siblings and they have autism. And so I'm working to help make sure that all of these things that we're looking at that, that Becca has brought forward are not 
as much of an issue for them. So I'm a special education advocate. I work a lot with autism tree and I work a lot with uh, families whose children have a diagnosis of autism. And so I have three questions, if I may. Um, the first one is, you know, I find it very interesting because when James came to me, he was my foster son and he came at two and a half. And I had had many foster children in my home, but he just lined everything up and I'd never seen anything like this. You know, I'd put a bunch of blocks on his tray of his high chair and he would line them all up in gradation of color according to the rainbow, you know, and this was fascinating to me. And I still find his brain exceedingly fascinating. Um, he was nonverbal. He'd had um, sustained a, a, a significant amount of um of trauma on top of it. He had been locked in a closet for two and a half years. So when he came to me, he only had a, um, a receptive language of a four month old and expressive language of a two month old. He's now nine and a half in a gen ed class uh, doing very well um, with an eight, but he is now reading at a sixth grade level. So he learns these patterns, right? And I can see him start doing that. And the more that I explain to him about something, the more I see him putting these patterns together. And so my question is, when you were talking about empathy and understanding of what it is to be non-neurotypical, I try very hard for him to understand, you know, Bubby, you need to explain to me um, <clears throat> what it is, how your autistic brain is working so that I can understand. And I will explain to you how my non-artistic autistic brain is working so that we can try to communicate. And so I'm wondering if this um, innate nature of people uh, with autism to look for patterns, is it possible to teach them patterns of behavior that would then suit them better when they are looking for empathy and understanding the world around them? Mm. So I know you've got three questions, but I'll just, since you've, you've, you've paused after the first one, I'll just answer that one first. Please. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that um, many social skills programs for autistic kids um, try to break down behavior into patterns, into rules, uh, and autistic people often feel more comfortable once they know the rules. So, you know, the social world is very confusing. And especially when you're in a group, like in the playground or um, at a party, and there's a lot of conversations happening simultaneously, it can be overwhelming. And uh, they, it's hard to see the patterns. But I think that maybe what educators are doing when they're teaching social skills is trying to isolate what are those rules and what, are they useful? Once you, once you have the rule, you know what's appropriate to say, what's, what's not appropriate to say or do. Uh, we could discuss about you know, whether it's ethical to change autistic kids' behavior in that way or whether we should respect that they are simply different. Why, why are we changing their behavior? But to the extent that autistic people might find it more comfortable once someone has given them a manual, if you like, for social interaction, uh, you know, let's, let's do the research and see if it's, evaluate whether people are benefiting from it. I will tell you, Michelle, yes, we see those behaviors in social. And in fact, 
that's how we create the mask when we talk about masking, right? And we also know that that's not great for us to do all the time, but that's how we create, you know, that's where that comes from. It's like, oh, this is what people do in this scenario. And now I just need to take my echolalia and take this and take all of these other skills that I have and use them, use them to kind of get through this situation, right? Um, the problem that we always have with you guys is that we don't understand why you do the things you do right? Like I can copy it and I can do it, but that doesn't mean I get why you do it. Most of the time I'm going, this is a waste of my energy, right? All of this small talk nonsense. I could be doing so many other things. Um, and, and so understanding the why is what we count on you guys for. Why am I going through all of these motions when I don't see the sense in it, right? What am I doing that for? Um, and so it's like, you know, unfortunately, sometimes we learn it too well and we kind of, you know, keep our comfort out of things so that you guys are comfortable, right? Um, but it's also a skill set. I mean, as an adult, I can be in and out of the bank in 10 minutes because I know exactly what to say to the lady at the desk and get myself in and out, no spoons used, right? Um, and so it can be both ways, right? We can use our pattern seeking behaviors and our ability to just see that um, to create a lot of different coping mechanisms. But we need you guys for the why we're doing it. Like why bother? And that's what I. That's what I hope that I'm helping my son understand yeah. by asking him what it, what what is your autistic brain saying? How is that communicating differently than mine? Um, and I, I hope that I'm doing that. So I guess my my second question is is when you're talking about the more nerve cells, and, and I'm really looking at. Um, what's happening when they're in a classroom, right? They're overwhelmed by all the stimulus, all of the socialness of it, because as an advocate, I'm looking not only to the academics, but mostly to the social aspects of school, not just for um, children with autism, but for every student, you know, whether they have dyslexia or, or uh, um, anxiety or anything, that, that social environment of being uh, graded, so to speak, against your peers is really overwhelming to, to all children. So I'm looking at that kind of thing and I'm thinking, you know, the, the more nerve cells that you talked about, how does that impact children in an educational setting and what can we do in that educational setting to support them better? Hmm. Okay, that's a, another great question. So thank you, Michelle. Um, first of all, I should say that the finding that the autistic brain on average may have more neurons that needs to be replicated. So the basis of science is that if you have a discovery in one lab and you need another lab to independently demonstrate the same result, that's the basis of science. And obviously that kind of research is very painstaking. And in particular, that involves post-mortem brain tissue being available. Um, just mention that, but let's go straight to your point about the sort of what's the what's the practical relevance of a finding like that you know so let's say that the more neurons you have the more information you're picking up the more detail you're picking up and the risk of course is that although that gives you advantages when it comes to attention to detail it can also lead to sensory overload too much information and that that could be exhausting uh, it could be confusing you don't know which information is relevant to attend to and which isn't. You know, so the practical implication might be that when we're designing classrooms or, or settings for autistic kids, we need to think about the design of the classroom 
to think about how to minimize the risk of sensory overload. And it could be to do with the colors, it could be to do with the kind of lighting. Some autistic people, I'm sure you know this, react almost with pain to um, the flicker rate of some kinds of light and they're much more comfortable with other kinds of light, you know. So we need to kind of be factoring in if, if, the, if the physical conditions in which they're learning, maybe the size of the group, the amount of background noise, whether the child is able to sit on the same chair every week so that there's predictability even in their tactile sensation. What, what does it feel like to sit on this particular chair? The sound of the teacher's voice, all of these things, the more we can make it predictable, the more we are kind of minimizing sensory overload so that the person is in the optimal conditions to be able to learn. Because with all of us, if we're, if we're in a state of anxiety, we can't learn. So we need to kind of bring down the levels of anxiety to create the optimal conditions for learning. But then if I could in interject something, you, you still have a third question, Michelle, right? Yes. But let, let, me, let me just interject something here by looking at uh, the pattern seekers. Um, page 173, for those of you who bought it. Um, how can we bring hyper-systematizing into education? Hyper-systematizers, including autistic people, learn differently. So some will gravitate towards systemizing subjects such as math, physics, and, and, and music. And you then go into this whole notion of imagining an educational system that offered two streams, a broad curriculum, as we have now, for those who are generalists, which is most kids, and a narrow curriculum for those who are specialists, the hyper-systematizers. I mean, you're, you're, you're talking again about um, thinking about profitably um, changing the education system to accommodate values that until yeah. now have not been fully explored. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how it is in the US, but where I am in the UK, you know, kids are expected to just all fit into one educational system. So it's a one size fits all. But we know that a percentage of kids don't learn uh, in, in the, the mainstream settings and they have a miserable time. And so what I'm proposing is we need, we need a reform of our educational settings to reflect this concept of neurodiversity. We might need to break up the group of 20 kids or 30 kids into much smaller groups of kids who learn by doing. They like hands-on experimenting. Kids who learn by listening, uh, looking, you know, looking at the teacher's face and listening to his or her voice kids who learn in teams and kids who prefer to learn in a solitary way. You know, there's lots of different learning styles and we need to acknowledge them. Otherwise we're doing a disservice to those kids who, who just can't learn in, the, in the, the mainstream setting. And losing some possible benefits here, huge benefits. Yeah. So Michelle, um, uh, please go to your final, uh, your third question. I'm sorry. But I, I couldn't agree more as a mom and as an advocate that, um, you know, a lot of times here in the United States, we're looking at goals, right? Getting them to be able to do X, Y, Z within a year, you know, being able to read, being able to write, whatever. But I personally believe that we must have the right setting. They must be in the right atmosphere with the right supports in order to access education at all. If we don't have those, 
those things in place, then we can have the best goals possible, but we won't reach them or have meaningful progress towards them if we don't have the right learning environment for them. So uh, I, I totally agree with that. But then I'm wondering, you know, as we're going through this and, and as Becca brought up, you know, we're looking at... Uh, my goal is never to change my child. I do not think there is anything wrong with my child. My child is who he is. And like Becca said, um, there is no, uh, I don't need to know how he got to be that way. Is it the neglect and abuse that he sustained that changed his brain somehow? I personally believe that he was saved by being autistic because he didn't need that um, emotional connections in the same way that a neurotypical child would have in order to, to survive what he went through. But that's my opinion. But I look at that and while I'm not trying to change my child, I think that he is marvelous and wonderful the way that he is. I want to help him to understand the rest of the world around him because I know um, that it's not going to change to accommodate him, but to be able to give him the understanding of what maybe not that he wants to be like us, but understand why we, the why, Becca, of of neurotypical interactions and activities. To, and I, my goal is to support him. And, you know, I'm alarmed by the um, rate of adults with um, suicidal idealizations and um, other senses of not fitting in. And as a mom, that breaks my heart, but as an advocate makes me want to ensure more that we're giving those kinds of supports. So in that academic setting, again, if you have any uh, ideas on how we can support children as they're going through the school and through all of that, particularly when you start getting into puberty and middle school. Oh, Lord, I don't know what it's like over there, but it's a little bit of uh, uh, Lord of the Flies here. <laughs> and, and um, you know, and then you get into high school and by then you've already um, feel so terribly bad about yourself. So, yeah. So I'm just going to pick up on your final sentence there that you know that kids and young people are feeling really bad about themselves you know that to me that's a sign that we've failed as a society as an educational system uh you know we have failed a child if they end up feeling bad about themselves the whole point about nurturing kids is to make them feel good about themselves to develop self-confidence uh self-esteem uh, so that they can go on and make their way in the world. So that's a kind of, it's like an indicator that something's gone terribly wrong. I wanted to also mention the concept, in this country we, we call it reasonable adjustments, or I think maybe in the US, reasonable accommodations. Yes. Yeah, but it's a, it's a legal term, you know, and whether we're talking about the school system or whether we're talking about the workplace, you know, let's just focus for a second on the workplace. The employer has a duty under the law to make reasonable accommodations or reasonable adjustments for somebody with a disability. So, you know, we're very familiar with putting in ramps for wheelchairs, for people who have a physical disability and can't use the stairs, right? What's the equivalent for an autistic person you know, what kinds of reasonable accommodations can be made? And reasonable usually means cheap. 
you know, that the employer may not want to spend a lot of money um, helping the, the autistic person to feel included. But even the small ones, I think, are, could, could be very important, like background noise, like saying it's fine to wear your headphones or it's fine to, um, you know, to stay on doing your work even during lunch break when other people may want to um, ex- expect their colleague to come for lunch. Now, these, are kind of, these don't cost anything, um, but we might also think of, of uh, reasonable accommodations that do cost, because if we're really going to bring down that very worrying suicide rate in autism, we may need to look for extra support, extra money. So, for example, I know of one company called Auticon that just hires autistic people to do coding. But that for, for every employee, they provide a support worker. Mm-hmm. So that is, a, that is an extra cost. But that way they make sure that when the person has a meltdown, when the person is struggling, when they feel they can't come into work one day, they can talk to their support worker. There is an extra cost for the company, but this isn't about commodification of autism, of autistic people. It's about making sure that their human right to work is met. And if that, if that means spending extra money, that's what we need to do as a, as a civilized society. I think that that we have the same thing with the reasonable accommodations, but we also have the Americans with Disability Act that works in in tandem with that. And it's about access. How do they access this? And and your example of the ramps is is right. But how does a person who has a invisible disability often for um, autism, how are they accessing that? And, And if we look at Uh, making sure that access is equitable, I think we can get a lot further. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed being part of this panel and and, uh, meeting you and Becca and and being able to uh, ask questions. Thank you for this opportunity. Well, I also, I want want to thank both of you, uh, Becca and Michelle, but I I want to thank the Autism Tree Project because when when we thought about taking seriously this idea of nothing about us without us, we decided we, we need to have you both on the platform to make sure that this conversation is, uh, is truly a conversation. Sorry, Roger. No, no, no. I was just going to say this. I, I should probably go to, I mean, Michelle and Becca, please stay there and, and comment as well. But there are um, uh, five questions that came in, uh, which I'd like to get. Garrett Hoff uh, asked the following. How does one take into account the evolving diagnostic criteria of autism, which can often be influenced by social factors into developing a genetic basis of what autism is? Yeah, Um, so that's a great question. So this is back to basic science, which is genetics. Yeah. Um, And you're absolutely right. If we'd been doing a genetic study 20 years ago, we'd have had a very different cohort of autistic people to ones that we might um, recruit into a study today. And the purpose of our new study, but which we've paused for all the reasons I explained to, to do full consultation about the ethical issues, but the purpose is to get um, a representative sample. So autistic people who have uh, no learning disability or intellectual disability, but also autistic people who do, autistic people who have 
good language and also autistic people with minimal language. So the whole spectrum, because the genetics is going to be very different depending on which part of that spectrum you look at. Yeah, so here's an, another piece as well. Do you think this is from um, Samuel Lesniewski? Do you think there's any actual backing behind the, uh, I know if I mispronounced that, I'm sorry, but Lesniewski. Do you think there's any actual backing behind the uneven gender split in autism, or is it mostly due to misdiagnosis? You kind of dealt with that earlier. but Yeah, so I, meant, I mentioned earlier that I think that um, historically, a lot of girls and women went undiagnosed or misdiagnosed. Undiagnosed because maybe autism looks different in females. You know, Becca mentioned that some, some girls and women spend a lot of effort hiding their autism. Um, but maybe also misdiagnosed, you know, uh, as anxiety, social anxiety, sometimes as an eating disorder, because that's what comes to attention if someone's being very picky with their food and is limiting how much they're eating. Um, all kinds of other diagnoses may have been given, but not autism. But I think in answer to this question, I think that even after better recognition, better diagnosis of autism in females, we may still see a gender bias, let's call it, towards males. And that may be relevant to the cause of autism. Our lab has been looking at the prenatal sex steroid hormones like testosterone and estrogen because of what those hormones do to brain development prenatally. And we've found that both androgens like testosterone and estrogens are elevated in pregnancies that later result in an autistic person. So I mentioned Genetics is one player in the cause of autism, but hormones, prenatal hormones is another player and how these interact because the hormones themselves can change the genes. They change gene expression, just makes autism very complex. Uh, and this is more about just understanding the basic science of, what, of what's causing it. And I totally understand that basic science may be too far away to have real world relevance for many autistic people and their families, which is why we also need applied research and much better services. There's, because there's a component of this diagnostic bias to me that is also social in its roots, right? Because we don't look for girls because what we expect a good girl to look like Right. We expect a good girl to be quiet and sit in the corner and not want to make, you know, big announcements or, or that kind of thing. Um, and so as a little girl, I was a very good little girl. I read by myself in the corner. I was always busy writing or reading or something. Right. I was such a good little girl that how could there be something wrong? Right. I didn't look like what autism is supposed to look like because I was a girl and I was doing, you know, girl society things. So there's a piece of that in there too, that gives us some of the numbers are a little bit off as well. Absolutely, absolutely. So that, so the gender ratio in autism is um, undoubtedly influenced by social factors too, the way Becca has described. And it makes it much more difficult, um, if I may interject, it makes it much more yeah. difficult as an advocate to get services 
because, um, you know, of course, the school wants to reach out and get services for that boy who's throwing things and picking up his chair or, or you know, eloping, but the little girl who's sitting in the back and is the best reader in the class and, and the teacher's pet because she never does anything wrong, it makes it much more difficult to get services and supports. Here's um, a question from Teresa Davis. Um, I'm a parent of a young man with ASD and we are black Americans. What is being done to include the concerns and experiences of black people with ASD in academia and research? Um, so thank you for that question. Um, I, I wonder where, how much research there actually is into autism in black communities. I suspect far too little. Um, and historically, there may, there may well have been a bias towards, um, you know, white uh, autistic people. Um, I think as part of kind of changing um, who is included in research, we should not just be thinking about gender diversity, but also ethnic diversity, uh, cultural diversity. Mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, I think I think I just have to agree with what I think is behind the question, which is that we need to increase the amount of research into autism in, in black people, children and adults. There was a, um, I just I mentioned this, uh, there was a paper um, in PNAS, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, came out in December 2020. Uh, title was The Social Patterning of Autism Diagnoses Reversed in California between 1992 and 2018. Alex Winter, Christine Fountain, Keeley, Cheslek, Pastava, and Peter Bierman, um, at Columbia. And basically was saying that uh, di diagnosed incidence rates did not raise rise uniformly across socio-demographic groups. By 2018, children of black and Asian mothers were diagnosed higher rates than children of non-Hispanic white mothers. There are several categories in here. So in other words, my point was, I can't go into the whole paper, that this is being looked at, obviously, now. This it, is, it is starting. Yeah, and, and we published a paper just this year using something called the National Pupil Database, which is millions of school ah. kids in England. Again, finding higher rates of autism now in, in the black community um, than historically, probably because you know, that community was being overlooked. Um, but I think we, this is just the beginning. We need a lot more research into cultural differences in autism. And here's, here's a question on something that we all are concerned about, anonymous attendee. Is there any research on autistic romantic relationships? My husband and I are both autistic, would be very interested in that research. Most of what I've heard implies that autistic adults are either unable to have those relationships or that their autistic behaviors are inherently abusive, neither of which appears to be the case in our relationship or in the relationship of other couples that we know. So again, there's the stories out there. Do you have any hmm. um, um, to that? I have to say, I just finished watching the TV series called Love on the Spectrum. It's on, it's on, it's on Netflix and I recommend it. It, it came out of um, Australia uh, and it's about autistic people dating. Um, obviously that's not research, that's just um, 
that's that's television um but it's i think it's it's really good about in terms of raising awareness that autistic people want relationships they want intimate relationships they have the same emotions as anyone else uh, but they may struggle with it there's research from ucla by liz Logerson, who is looking at uh develop has developed different uh, approaches to social skills teaching, including dating yeah. for teenagers and for adults, because some of the complexity of intimate relationships may be quite challenging for autistic people and they may need a bit of support. But I'm not aware of um, much research into romantic relationships in autistic people. And again, it's, 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 a, it's really? a real world. Yeah. You know, we, we need more research. Yeah. So this, the, the, the stage we're at now, we're, we're, we're coming close to closing here. So I kind of, a, I, I'm thinking, I was thinking back the other day about, you remember Sir Ken Robinson, of course, the great, the great speaker who sadly died recently, um, wrote a book called The Element, How Finding Your Passion Changes Everything. And he had a story in there about this little girl called Gillian. You, you, you recall this, Simon? Um, and she was uh, eight years old. Uh, schoolwork was disaster. She was just all over the place, turned in assignments late. Handwriting was terrible, tested poorly, disruption to the entire class, fidgeting, staring out the window, forcing the teacher to stop the class to pull her attention back, and the next doing something to disturb the other children around there. So eventually the school got in touch with the parents and said, look, you, 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 have, to, <laughs> you have to do something about this. She, she must have a learning disorder of some sort. It must be ADHD. This was back in the 30s. So that, that actually wasn't an available disorder, as Ken used to put it um, then. So Gillian's parents get a letter from the school, um, puts the daughter, the mother puts the daughter into her best shoes, um, tied her hair in ponytails and took her to a psychologist for assessment. So the psychologist sits there, it's a large room with leather couches and bookcases. He listens to Gillian, um, he puts Gillian at the end of the room, listens to everybody, talks to her for a while, asks the mother about the difficulties. Um, and eventually Gillian's mother and the psychologist stopped talking, man rose from his desk, walked to the sofa, sat into the next little girl. He said, Gillian, you've been very patient. I just..." Your mother and I are just going to go outside. We'll be back shortly. Um, two adults then leave. The psychologist takes the mother out of the room. And he says to the mother, uh, as he's going out, he switches on the radio. He says to the mother, let's go out. And as they get out and close the door, they look in through a window to see what's going on. And Gillian is dancing, beautifully dancing. The radio was left on, there is music playing, she's dancing. And at last the psychologist turns to Mrs. Uh, Gillian's mother and said, you know, Mrs. Lynn, Gillian isn't sick. She's a dancer. Take her to a dance school. And that was Gillian Lynn, who later worked with uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber, and did Cats, Phantom of the Opera, all those sorts of things. Wonderful story, I thought, that Ken used to tell about this sort of stuff. And it seems to me that we're sort of at that stage now, getting getting more facility in dealing with these things. I mean, Becca's 
points are extraordinarily well taken, and Michelle's points. But is there some <laughs> a little a little light at the end of the tunnel here? Yeah. Um, first of all, Roger, you're a great storyteller. <laughs> so thank you for your contributions uh, today. But um, you know, I think the story you've just told is all about you know look at each individual and look at their strengths. You can almost like ignore the diagnosis, whether it's ADHD or autism or whatever. You know, you're you're presented with a child or an adult in front of you. Look for their strengths because everybody has some strengths, and play to their play to their strengths. You know, if that kid could dance, um, who cares if they couldn't sit still in a classroom? Uh, just find out what their passion is, find out what they enjoy, and tailor it to the individual. Because that's the way that you're going to end up with an individual who feels good about themselves, feels confident in their own abilities, instead of feeling like a failure, that they're, they're in a system where they are not achieving let, let them follow what they're good at. And then let's look at their consequences for mental health and well-being. Yeah, I th but I think it's important also to stress here um, that how much, how much I, do, I actually want to thank you for the, for the energy and the concern that you put into all of this, because it must not be great fun to get shot at some of the time. Um, uh, and and I always find that you deal with this um, kind of wonderfully. But and I, I think about the children all the time. Uh, but later, I want to talk about aging in, in autism. We'll have a couple of people we can talk about on that thing as well, because we haven't really dealt with that very often. Um, but, there were, you know, I just think it's... Um, it's wonderful to to explore the possibilities as you do in, in the book there. There's another story that Ken used to tell, and then I'll stop. Um, he used to tell a story about an elementary class, little six-year-olds, and there was there was a girl, little girl sitting at the back, and she just, just never got involved in these in these classes. She was just not interested. Uh, but this day, um, the teacher has given them a, a, a prop, and she she looks at the little girl at the back, and she's sitting there scribbling away, very, very engaged, very diligent. And so the teacher looks back and thinks, what was she doing? She usually doesn't give a damn about this. So eventually she goes over and uh, says, um, well, well, and what are you doing? What, what, what have you found to do today? And the little girl doesn't look up. She says, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the teacher says, drawing a picture of God? He says, but nobody knows what God looks like. Little girl doesn't look up and she says, they will in a minute. <laughs> Which is one of my favorite stories about how much wisdom you can get from, um, from engaging the way that, that you do with the, with the community. So I'm, I'm just enormously grateful to you for all you've done. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.